you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real what do you say for the 200th episode of a podcast do you say uh, uh thanks for doing the show with me buddy thanks for listening audience um are you ready for you know i was gonna say 200 more make it a thousand gambling with house money here make it a thousand more <laughs> right um i thought you were gonna say something like we're 1500 miles from lincoln we've got half a can yeah. of Lacroix, half a pack of noah's cigarettes that he doesn't smoke anymore it's dark because we always record at night and at least I'm wearing glasses. That's right. That would have been... Hit it! <laughs> that would have been so much better. And I'm glad that all of it's on the record. Um, Noah, my friend, uh, this is Be Real. I gotta let you know that for some reason. Uh, it's episode 200. We've been at this uh, for a cool six and a half. Um, six and a half? six and a third we started in i don't even remember who i was when this started march 15 march of 15 is when we started it's a relic of the obama years do you think our do you like when you think of those it's like parks and rec and be real are the relics of the obama years yeah things that never would have flied flown right uh during trump's america yeah i think of them as both artifacts of a certain cultural moment one of the first movies we did was white house down which makes me was forever an obama podcast was that protecting the president it was that was the very first one do you remember the other two movies murder at 1600 god damn it i was still thinking the other day about how crazy it was that murder at 1600 a movie i've not heard referenced by anyone before or since was one of our very come on wesley snipes it's a great film Tate Donovan? Tate Donovan. Wait, who's the president in that one? I think Alan Alda is the murderer. Oh, it's definitely Alda. Playing against type. Who's the president? Yeah, Alda's playing like the James Woods part. I got to say on Google, if you type in murder at 1600, immediately fills. So maybe it's just you living in your sheltered Pacific Northwest bubble where murder at 1600 doesn't come into play. That's true. Oh, the president is played by Ronnie Cox. Really? Incredible. Definitely of a Republican. Dueling banjos. President Jack Neal. Wow. Um, oh, Dennis Miller. I forgot he was in it. What a great film. What was the third one? In the Line it of was, Fire. Oh, another incredible movie. In the Line of Fire is great. All right, let's see if we can get through all 200. So episode two was Sitting Shiva. Okay, Which what was number record? one? Automotive hubris? No, protecting the president. What do you think oh, we were talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you said number three was sitting Shiva? Two. And then what was three? Automotive hubris. Yeah, yes. Four. Or, when, when did we get the submarine guy on? Our first guest, John Clear, who's almost certainly no longer with us. Um, R.I.P. John, if necessary. <laughs> If applicable. <laughs> um, I think he was like episode 20. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, what did you feel like were the major turning points in the show? I can think of... You want me to toss one out? Please. When I stopped drinking heavily during the recordings, I think... Um, oh. You remember, Between like, which episodes did that occur? Do you remember? I think as soon as we had guests, I was like, well... Can't be drunk with the guests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yeah, God, those early days in the KZUM Lincoln studio, I would just... I forgot I would, that that started there. I would go get like several IPA tall boys and just start talking to you. Wow. What were you doing when this started? How has is, how is your life changed? Well, I was living with a different woman. Remember that's that. that's true. Um, she fell asleep when we recorded episode two. I feel like we finally hit what it was we were trying to do. Episode 22. Chance, do you know what it is? Is it You're a Real Dick the Sea? Close. It was Christ the Lude. Christ the Lude. <laughs> it was not only a great solid category of, of course, raunchy Christmas films, but it was a great pun. And I feel like whenever we land on like a good pun, it really does hang in the title. And I think there it was like, nice. Like we, we nailed it. That's definitely your personal definition of what makes the show good is if the, I mean, Christ the Lude is great. Episode 24, not a good one, I would say. What was 24? 24 was the Hangover Pod, a.k.a. the movies we watched in Lucy's living room that we strung together as movies about sad old white guys. One last shot at family. (laughs) One last shot at family. Danny Collins, Mississippi Grind, and Run All Night. But I would say... (laughs) A formative podcast, like maybe not a good episode, but a formative one, because I I would say there's at least one Danny Collins reference in every episode that goes after that. Hey. Let me ask you this. If you had to pick either your mother or father to come back on the pod. Oh, my God. Who would it be? For the sake of the listeners, my mom is a way better podcast guest and like watcher of movies. Um, what What's your take? Oh, definitely well, we my Dick mom. Dig Dug did come back on the pod. Though. That's true. Yeah, so it's Kathleen's but, turn. But Kathleen and Nancy would be the... Yeah, Big Rod was trying to like talk about weird foreign films that... I don't, whatever. Thank God he picked Chariots of Fire to watch, because otherwise, yikes. Um, is there a review in our archives that in retrospect you're like, what the hell was I thinking when I gave it that rating? Never. He either cannot remember or would never admit to such a question. I know one of the stupid ones from really early was, we both gave Mad Max Fury Road a good bad. Uh, Stupid. Which is terrible, right? That's <laughs> Mad the Max worst. Fury Road is so unbelievably watchable and rewatchable. Was it too bleak? Did I say it was too bleak to be like fully watchable? Well, yeah. It was back in the commentary when your 
your one of your main points is like it's a little bleak and i was like you know burping up ipas like yeah it actually is um and in the meantime it's probably like the best action movie of the last decade you know any superlative you want to put on it that one comes to mind what was your favorite on location podcast was it a me and brent in mexico (laughs) b yeah i loved i had a ball at that one well i mean just how it like the experience of recording you were you were clearly not in mexico okay i'm not picking it's a different category of when we were together i think okay what are my other options b uh, when Casey and I were in that like La Quinta doing supermarket supermarket heroes, what was it? Retail superstore servitude. Retail. You got romps. it. Mm-hmm. And then of course the uh, the recruit pod live from the the uh, murder house. Well, the recruit we just or completely- let's swap that out because you were there. Let's have B or let's have C B when I was with Lucy and Bree in Vermont and we did the Tim Curry pod. That's the best episode of those ones. Um what about when me you- and Brent and me blackout drunk wasn't wasn't <laughs> the best one? Do you have anything besides Brett and Noah talking? <laughs> For being just completely wasted after asked, neither of you had any time for my defense of uh, Gore Verbinski's The Mexican. Um, Don't even remember watching that movie. <laughs> Couldn't tell you what it's about. Didn't you? Didn't you record live from a parked car when we did like uh, uh, James Bond, like the Spectre? No, I was in, in the Minneapolis St. Paul airport. Only two times in the history of the show. Noah, have you ever said this movie's either good, good, or bad, bad, but it can't be in between? Do you remember the two movies you've said that about? I don't even remember one of the movies that I said that about. It was Eyes Wide Shut. I, would, you de- I stand by that. And you decided it was bad, bad. And it was Fight Club, and you decided it was bad, bad. Interesting. Both of which I think are good, good. And that's nice. If I had to argue with myself, who's to say? Let me ask um, you this. What was your favorite reeled in? Was it cocktail? Yes. You don't have to ask any further. Cocktail's uh, a movie that just like sneaks up on you. And it's like, wow. I'm watching a movie about these two guys the just being bartenders. The poets. Yeah, the last of the barman poets. The sex on the beach. The, the schnapps, schnapps made, made from, from peach. peach. The Alabama Slammer. I make things with juice and froth. The pink squirrel. Favorite Megapod? Probably the Volcano Dante's Peak one. Is that the first one? That's a good one. There's also the uh, Capote one. I think that's the second one. The Megapods, if I'm being honest, I feel like the ideas got better, but they became less fun to do. I don't know, man. Capote Pod also had Tombstone and Wyatt Earp and the Prestige and the Illusionist. That's the one where I forgot to hit record on Tombstone and then you got really mad and then you rated one of my favorite movies, Bad Bad. You changed your rating because you had to do the opening review again. It had to be done. It did not. It didn't teach me any lessons. It just... Made me feel bad. 
do we want to talk about <laughs> you got any more this is this is scintillating stuff this is fan service this is fan service um i'm ready to go okay i haven't been recording this whole time oh for fuck's sake um for 200 yeah. folks we uh we're doing movies about criminal brothers adoptive criminal brothers supposedly adoptive it was supposed allegedly to, yeah <laughs> it was supposed to be adoptive um i think they are all adoptive why do you think that the movies by well, the way are in, brothers bloom blues brothers and four brothers so four well, brothers is the, definitely yeah four brothers without a doubt I think Blues Brothers, it's obvious that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi are not biological brothers. And then I think at the beginning of Brothers Bloom, they never specify like whether these are actual brothers. It just sort of picks up on them in foster care and they've like worked out this routine amongst them. But like the the goof is they're like the same age. So I don't know. I don't know. They're like the yin and yang of each other. So I think they're 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 adoptive, but they're they're brothers because of their childhood bond. You better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission. Only 11 days. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. Our Lady of Blessed Acceleration, don't fail me now. Blues Brothers, 1980, Jake Blues, just released from prison, puts together his old band to save the Catholic home where he and his brother Elwood were raised. I had fun with this one being like, well, they're not like, it's not a crime movie, but they are criminals, certainly by virtue of what they do over the course. (laughs) And they're on the run from the police the whole movie. Almost immediately, yeah. I mean, if you look back to Elwood's driving record, he's been had a warrant out for his arrest before the movie even began. This is a crime movie. This, to me, is a crime movie. And they have to, like, commit a crime, kind of, to get the band back together to then make this money. I would argue, even though they kind of... They earn, quote unquote, the money from this record contract at the end. The means to get all these people back together was, it was an illegal enterprise. True. Um, so this movie happens at a flashpoint after the first couple years of SNL. Of course, Aykroyd and Belushi are part of that original cast. Director John Landis in the midst of a string of hits between Animal House and uh, American Werewolf in London and Trading Places and the aforementioned Three Amigos. Yeah, it's Um, right after Animal House. Um, Is it surprising to you or not surprising that this is an SNL movie? Well, here's what I want to talk about. If you go back, 
and look at Ackroyd and Belushi debuting these characters on SNL and what that like meant or how much um, explanation was necessary or not for what they were doing. Um, it's mind boggling because you, it's a reminder that like, it wasn't really like people probably didn't even think of it as a sketch comedy show yet. It was like a variety show. So if two of the cast members wanted to come out, um, and be these unnamed people named Jake and Elwood blues and be handcuffed to the harmonica bag and just have like, you know, Paul Schaefer in the band playing soul man, like there's some TV for you kids. And I guess people's heads exploded. And it's, that's the same amount of um, really of pitching and premising that goes into this movie, which is just shockingly little in retrospect. Yes. There's both like a lot of talent in this movie, but like the, the idea of what they're making. I mean, it's like one of these, like late seventies, early eighties cocaine comedies yeah. where it's just like these drug addicts have at this, at this time, the equivalent of $50 million just to like do whatever the fuck they want with it. And what they choose to do is yes. Take these like David pumpkins level characters <laughs> from SNL to put it in contemporary parlance uh, yeah, and funny. make a nearly three hour movie where these guys, these, uh, these uh, blues brothers have uh, tried to find this band and like what they're actually doing is assembling what is essentially like a purple rain style movie mm-hmm. where they like have these songs that then lead up to the final performance Um None of which I've got a bone to pick with this film. None of which I, I guess I didn't realize that this movie does not contain what I consider to be the ultimate Blues Brothers song, Soul Man. Like, where where is that? They might listen to it on the radio, but they don't play it. You're right. They don't perform it. That's interesting. Maybe they maybe they thought that was too easy because that was the song they played when they debuted on SNL, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and for that reason alone, Blues Brothers is a bad bad. That's, and B- now we can move on to B- four B- brothers. BB for BB. Um, from NB. Where the N stands for Nebraska. No soul man. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I just think that, yeah, mostly the pleasure of this movie is just in the the goofy, goofy, goofy virtuosity of the of the people taking part, whether it be um, Belushi and Aykroyd uh, uh, dancing and not talking, which I think was half the appeal in the beginning. And they are just incredible dancers in their own ridiculous way. Like they're not like there's no point where you're like that they're a great dancer but they would be like great like wedding dancers like if someone busted out that move at your wedding you would be like wow like what is happening because Ackroyd's just like all legs and Belushi's all torso and he's doing the famous handsprings which are just unbelievable uh to watch in retrospect especially when you see like what Dan Ackroyd becomes physically like in his senior years yeah it's so weird to see him as like this Sort of like Gumby. Yes. 
It's like, where's Waldo? Just doing like high knees. Um, yeah. High knees know, for of, days. One of the things that one of my favorite bits in the entire movie, which I kind of wish they had gotten more mileage out of, but they spend so much time behind the wheel of a car is just like when the brothers do something at the same time, but they take different routes to it because of their body types. So when they go see the nun after Jake gets out of prison, she like invites them to sit down and they do so in those like kind of putatively small Catholic desks. And she's like, closer boys. And um, Ackroyd chooses to like crab walk it forward with his knees up. And Belushi just like drags his whole center mass like forward. Uh, so good. I wish there was, you know, that joke 10 more times in the movie. Yeah, well, that's my big issue with this movie, I think, is that it definitely is playing by the Animal House rules of, like, if you put ten funny scenes together, you have a movie. And there are some really funny scenes here, but other than that physical comedy, like, there's not a ton of depth with each character. Like, I almost feel like I know more about... Aretha Franklin's like bit part in this than I yeah. do about the Blues Brothers themselves like other than them being on a mission to put this band back together to make $5,000 to save this this orphanage that they don't seem to really like that much in practice uh, but there's no like individually they don't really have any needs uh, and so that's what makes the like, at the end of Animal House, like, you see all these guys have, like, lost something. Like, whether it was their, like, ability to party or, like, their entryway into another socioeconomic class or, like, just knowing that, like, you know, I went to college and succeeded in some way. And then, like, you feel for all the these different guys, even though you've only spent, like, a short while with them. And this one just, like, doesn't seem to have that heart to it of... You know, like, oh, I feel bad that uh, Karen Allen, like, broke up with Otter uh, for, for uh, what's his name? So, D- Donald Sutherland. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, on its face, I want to, I don't want to put a ton of stock in that criticism because, like, the anonymity of these guys is half the fun. But I think where your point holds a lot of water is, like, there should at least be some, like, written conflict between the brothers to yes. solve and yeah they not. should have like even when we'll, we'll get at it you know in the four brothers and brothers bloom but like the central conflict between all the brothers like is the reason that the movie's entertaining and yeah. like what makes that tension of two brothers who are also trying to pull off a criminal enterprise is the fact that like the friction between them is what's going to stop them potentially you know, that's like what's so funny about like the central conceit of my favorite sitcom, Frasier, where it's like these guys could be so much more successful than the medium success that they have. But every time they feel the other one like getting a little bit further up the chain, they like cut their knees from underneath them, <laughs> you know, and that's that. But that's funny, you know, and I think looking at this one, even though it's it's like 215, it feels it feels almost slight. It feels like a variety show where it's like, oh, you've got to know who these guys are coming in. And then they like kind of try to like put the Karen Allen-ness in it with Carrie Fisher as like the as the jilted ex-lover of, of Jim Belushi, of uh, John, John Belushi. Jesus Christ. Um, and... I don't know. It, that doesn't do a ton for me. And she like does the Star Wars 
Star Wars line and then she moves on. Like, I don't, I don't know. I know this is a classic and I know that people love this movie, but I guess it didn't have the, as much charm as I hoped it would have. Um, I don't know. I think it has a lot of charm. I just don't think it has, um, I just don't think it resembles a movie by any modern standard at all. And you've gone into the way with the drugs and the money and the just kind of uh, anarchic revolution of comedy that's happening that like allows them to crash 10,000 cars and do 10,000 lines of cocaine and invite um, every rhythm and blues and soul musician that they like to some often do entire songs um, in the movie. Well, they all which, have their like their acts, which is, I mean, that's incredible. Everybody's you know, great. seeing. Seeing like Aretha Franklin that close up on like such a nice film stock, especially I watched the the 4K restoration, which is a little bit longer, so maybe that's my issue. Just watch the theatrical cut. No, what are you doing? Um, but Aretha Franklin looks incredible. Uh, Ray Charles, uh, Cab Calloway, Cab Calloway, um, what's his name? Johnny Lee Hooker plays on the street in the James film. Brown. James Brown's the reverend at the when they see the light and realize incredible, incredible, and he has his own. He's got his own like scene in this movie, and I think that's one of the better scenes. I think the the car crash and like uh, the car chase, which is incredible. Don't get me wrong, like just watching that like YouTube video of that sequence is enough to understand what this movie is. Sure. Uh, and like the humor there of like how their nonchalance as like they destroy a JC Penny and like all the surrounding stores uh, is is super well done. But like, what's the? How do you top that? I guess with the military taking control of downtown Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I I like the the first car chase much better than the climactic car chase, which just goes on for a thousand. Well, apparently years. they spent half the half the budget on that that last ten minutes. I'm sure they did. I mean, there are... There's like a thousand extras. At times there are a thousand extras and 200 cars on screen at a given moment. Um, And if it resolved any other way than them like instantaneously going to jail and doing another musical number, you would be mad because like you're just... There can't possibly be more of the movie at that point. You know, one of the things I want to point out... um, I think it's really crucial and important and kind of uh, counterintuitively thoughtful for this movie to put so much appreciative emphasis on the black musicians like Aretha and Ray Charles and James Brown and Cab Calloway and Johnny Lee Hooker and also like have Jake and Elwood like like visibly appreciating them on screen Um, because that feels like an important bit of awareness of like, yeah, like obviously we cribbed these songs and are riding a wave of of cool into like being goofballs, but I feel like they paid a lot of homage to their influences, which is which is pretty crucial for this movie holding up. For sure. Yeah, and I mean I think the value of this as a piece of cinema kind of stands the test of any sort of narrative critique that I may have for it or like the quality of how the characters are developed. But that being said, like grading how you and I grade movies that we watch in order to talk about them on this podcast, this, I got to say, I think this movie, it, it, it drags a bit and becomes a bit repetitive 
and may not be the most watchable in a contemporary context. See, I didn't know we had a rating system. Is this something you're springing on me just in episode 200? 200 episodes now, I've been trying to like get you on board with this. And what is it? It's like two. two The first one is whether or not the TV turned on. (laughs) And the second one was if the volume, if you had to turn it up and down to get people's dialogue clear, but then like had to turn it down, you know, when action sequences or musical numbers occurred. It's a yes to both. This is a a yes, yes. (laughs) It's a yes, yes. You could, you, you had to change the volume, but the TV did turn on. Uh huh. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think it's a good bad. Like, I think that watching what it is, like, I never doubted that it was a poorly made or I never doubted like it's bona fides. It's not a poorly made movie. It's a very well made, expensive movie uh, with the sensibilities that I typically like from like the John Landis, National Lampoon, early SNL space. Uh, but that being said, like watching it now, you know, forty years on, uh, it it just could have been a little bit more. Like, and that's a critique of any SNL movie. It's like it has to stand up beyond just the, you know, the couple times that Rob Schneider did it on TV. You uh-huh. know, it has to be a rounded character. Otherwise, it's just like its own episode of SNL, which this kind of feels like there's music that's between interesting kind of short films that together don't add up to like a fully satisfying experience. This is why the ladies man is the proverbial like successful SNL movie. That is the gold standard. Mm, I'm going to give it a good, good simply because I had this exact same experience watching it like nine months ago and then rewatching it. I was like, Oh, this is going to be, God, that car chase goes on for a million years, and it does. And yet, I found myself having a fantastic time. So it's a good good for me. Maybe I should rewatch it. Do you want to stop recording, and I'll, and in three hours we can meet back up and see if I change my tune. Can't stop now, buddy. That would be an interesting conceit. Is like now that we've hit two hundred, we just go back and rewatch all the movies and decide what we think of them now, and if we agree with our assessments from six years ago. That is probably the only way the podcast could get more navel gazy. I what else what else am I gonna gaze at? My navel's right here. Comes with me. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk about four brothers? 
2005 four brothers when their adoptive mother is gunned down in a store robbery the quote unquote four brothers (laughs) investigate the murder for themselves and look for the killers but not is not all is what it seems this is not a great imdb (laughs) synopsis but yeah that's I go nuts for a movie where not all is what it seems. I do too. And this one, that's correct. You know, all is not what it seems. Um, Maybe like the Blues Brothers, most is what it seems. Yeah, that's not a phrase you could use to describe the Blues Brothers. You know, everything is what it seems. Evelyn Mercer, the greatest mother Ford degenerates ever had. What makes a brother? You gonna stick around a little while this time? Thinking about it, Ma. It's more than the color of your skin. I'm your Uncle Bobby. You're right. Your grandma, she adopted me and Uncle Jack like she did your daddy. It's the people you call family. She only came across four delinquents so far gone, she couldn't find anyone to take them in. So she did. Try one more time. Get him, Jerry. Yeah, get him, Jerry! Because some bonds are stronger than blood. No sins of man will go unpunished. Amen. The brothers gonna work it out. She's the only woman that ever gave a damn. The least we can do is go bang on a few doors. Be careful with my baby. What do I get? Here you go, sweetheart. Poke him with that. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. From director John Singleton. This doesn't add up. He's already got the money. There was no gang shooting. There was an execution. They set mom up. They set her up. Why would somebody hire a killer to shoot mom? From the streets where they grew up. What's the plan, Bobby? We're winging it, Jerry. You're always winging. We're gonna get killed. What you mean, we, white boy? So this is from uh, kind of like second wave Singleton. Um... When you get into the 2000s and he's just doing like Shaft and Fast and the Furious 2 and Four Brothers and becomes like a really um, a really fun, if super flawed, popcorn director after spending the 90s, um, I think, trying to find his voice. Well, first of all, coming out of the gates with a Titanic, a Titanically important and good movie with Boys in the Hood, uh, but then finding his voice with like Poetic Justice, making a great epic in Rosewood. But by this point, he's really uh, he's really settled into being an action director um, in the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, we, it's it's cool to go back to Singleton since we've done a podcast about his early work, um, yeah. which I think we agreed was impressive. Um, but yeah, he really does become, uh, you know, the director of the remake of Shaft and Too <laughs> Fast, Too Furious and Baby Boy. Empirically, um, so... Um, and this one is sort of curious because it has sort of the auspices of being something closer to his early boys in the hood. Yes. And it rejects at every turn any like <laughs> real desire to be that and becomes like an action movie to comical and just like chaotic ends. Yeah. I think you texted me. It was pure chaos. And that is a good way of describing what's happening in this movie it's chaotic in every sense yeah so we sort of start at this funeral of after the cold open of the mother getting gunned down um 
replete with uh, some post 9-11 anti-Muslim rhetoric in the opening there. And then we're at this funeral. All the brothers show back up. They're like, hey, we're the adoptive sons of this woman who was really great. And we're like kind of the the Mercers. Yeah, the Mercer brothers. Uh, And we're kind of the rejects and like whatever. And then they talk to Terrence Howard, who's a cop. And it's like, oh, like what happened with our mom? And he's like, ah, Detroit, cop stuff. (laughs) And then, I mean, in the four brothers defense, it does not seem like the police have this like on their radar, let alone like giving this priority, even though it seemed like Evelyn, the mother, was was a a, a civic leader. Um, But yeah, so like basically because of this conversation that didn't quite go their way uh, and like a sort of weird run in with a lawyer at a fancy law firm who is like, well, your mother hired me at $500 an hour to tell you I owe you nothing. Uh, (laughs) Have a nice life. Yeah, And then they're like, they're pissed about that. And then they just like decide to hunt down the goons who killed their mom and almost accidentally discover that it's a larger conspiracy that involves. Did you watch that? Did you, did you Quibi ever chance? No. Well, there was a Quibi, there was a Quibi remake of um, most dangerous game. Uh, and it had one of the Hemsworth brothers in it. I think it was Liam. Liam. And he yeah. was like running around Detroit and Christoph Waltz was like telling people where he was so they could kill him. And it was a similar setup here where he was like like a, a, a building developer trying to like renew downtown Detroit and like got caught up with the wrong people and like got a diagnosis that maybe like set him on a collision course. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here too. Uh, Andre 3000 the record career, the music career, not going great, has decided to flip Detroit real estate instead. Mm-hmm. You you want to? Why don't you finish out with the other three brothers? I don't think we've said who they are. So Mark Wahlberg's like in and out of jail, and he's also Seemingly. like he's out of work from the. All these guys are out of work from the car plants. And they all like are connected from when they were union guys, uh, when they did work at these car manufacturing plants. And now they're all some various level of criminal, whether like criminal serious enough for Terrence Howard to chase you down, you know, or just kind of low level scumbag, which I so, say Mark. So low level that the, it's impossible for the movie to define. Like, both Tyrese and Mark Wahlberg, like, seemingly come back to town from hockey and or army, and the cops are like, oh, these guys well, are yeah, bad Tyrese news. Well, yeah, Tyrese is a soldier, right? Right. They're bad news, but not so bad that I could really say, like, what the news is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unclear what these people are doing. And then, of course, the fourth brother is Garrett Hedlund, who... Right. He's like six, supposed to be like 16 or something in this. Yeah. Looking a lot like the lead singer from uh, Goo Goo Dolls. Yes, you're right. Um, and he is supposed to be some sort of, uh, what I can't remember what Terrence Howard and Josh Charles say about him. They're like, third rate rock star, first rate fuck up. <laughs> that's, I, I would say that sums it up pretty good. 
Fair enough. And of course, they have that famous catchphrase whenever anyone in the movie asks, like, Wahlberg, like, why are you doing this? Like, all your violent actions in this movie, they make no sense. Like, what are you up to? And Wahlberg, you know, looks dead into the barrel of the camera and says, we're on a mission from mom. Very good. All right. (laughs) Couldn't even get a laugh. All right. Maybe the walk was a little long for that shit. Um, Singleton, a really good director. He has like staged and constructed this movie um, as though these four brothers are iconic film characters who we will talk about for years to come. And and sometimes like the visual style with which he does it, like at the end when Wahlberg comes out to fight Victor Sweet on the ice, which we have to talk Victor Sweet later. um, It's like a Sergio Leone movie. Um, Just like coming out like a polar bear walking out of the stark white, ready to bare knuckle box on the ice. And it's just like, John, this looks amazing. There is no part of this script that is like up to snuff with like the pedestal you're putting it on. Yeah. And like, I think it's pretty telling, like even in that early sequence when each brother, save for Wahlberg, who doesn't have his like death moment with mom until the end, but like each brother like looks at the end of the, of the dining room table and like has a moment where, they like connect with the what they think the mother would say about them in that moment. Those are weird. But like it, oh, it's a weird sequence. But it, it just feels like Singleton doesn't know how to shoot it. Like what he does is like mixes in these like crazed, like very close up shots of the characters' heads as they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, mom, <laughs> say it again. And you can kind of see in like the background that like. The rest of the brothers are just like eating, minding their own business. Right. But it's just such like an awkward. And then when it does cut back to the foreshot of them sitting at the table, like none of them seem like moved by the fact that they've just like communicated with with a ghost, or at least had a recollection so meaningful that they felt that their mother was was sitting right there with them. And yeah, I don't know what it is, but like the the tones of of that kind of those character dynamics, like just don't feel like they're there. No, but, like, to have that idea in the first place of, like, the mom is so influential and meaningful and, like, touches the each of these guys in their, you know, adult souls still so much, like, just, like, to create that setup and that structure is just, like, there's such a level of profundity behind it that then when you see it is, like, this is, this does not work at all. Right. Um, and then I also think he Singleton has trouble like rendering Detroit. Like I think he's unsure whether it should be Eight Mile or it should be Fast and Furious. You know, and I think like especially when there's that weird plot with uh, Tyrese is like on again, off again with Sofia Vergara, who's just like is suffering from debilitating like mental illness and like bouts of paranoia in a way that's so outrageous and like just defensive i would say to Uh like women in this movie but there's like that opening humorous quote-unquote sequence where like her ex-boyfriend not tyrese is like chasing them both down the street with a gun 
uh, in his car trying to kill them. And they're like, ha ha, we made it back to the house. If you make it back to the house, that's base and you have to stop shooting. Right. It was, uh, it's a, it's the, it's weird beats. And it, there's like, they try to go for humor with Sofia Vergara, but even like locking her out of the house in that one scene that he's like talking to the insurance guy. It's like, this isn't funny. It's just kind of like cruel. Like both in the fact that an actor has to play this role and that this is the way you're choosing to like render this person. I don't necessarily think what you're talking about is a Detroit problem. It's a, just like an, it's two, I'm conflating two things. It's sense of place, but also the relationships. We can approach it any way you want. I really like, like, I think that Wahlberg's drive into Detroit where you see sort of like the industrial barrenness and then you see those like row houses that like, you know, Soderbergh had Don Cheadle walk by, um, you know, 50 years later, but also 50 years earlier and no sudden move. And then I also really like when you go to the, the Victor Sweet spaces, it kind of reminds me of that, the Tim Robinson, uh, Sam Richardson show Detroiters where you see that kind of like plush 70s moneyed style that's super anachronistic but kind of hung on in like restaurants and poker rooms and stuff where like Victor Sweet's whole house is decorated like a, you know, like a pool table mixed with a spa. Um, Yep. But yeah, I think what, if I can piggyback on your point, it's just like when this movie cuts to action, I have no idea whether it's supposed to be serious. And sometimes it's like deliriously fun that you have no idea. And sometimes again, it's just like when, when the shit goes down and do we, God, do we say which, which brother doesn't make it? Are we allowed? It's the one who screams mommy. (laughs) Classic, classic four brother. When Garrett Hedlund gets his fucking uh, sternum caved in by machine gun fire, um, <laughs> it's like Singleton switches. I I was trying to find actually technically what he's doing. I'm curious if you have any idea, but it's similar to uh, Too Fast, Too Furious. It's almost like he switches into a higher frame rate. And um, I, it's so playful on one hand, and yet a character we care about is like yelling mommy while he bleeds from the mouth. This goes back to like, they were being, attempted murder was committed against Tyrese earlier. And they were just like, ha ha, we've made it to the house. I don't right. know what Or we just killed two guys on the street yeah. in cold blood without really establishing that they killed our mother. Let's go back to it. It's wild. Well, that's what I'm talking about too in terms of tone. It's like, are we supposed to feel like we're in a world where anyone can die at any moment? Like that gritty realism? Or are we supposed to feel like, hey, we're in a Mark Wahlberg action movie where they're going to kill all the bad guys and all the good guys are going to be totally fine? So when it turns out to be more of a morality tale about losing one's family, I think it kind of loses that. I mean, anything it had built in like the humor or like the lighthearted levity or something. Uh, is no longer applicable. Yeah, I mean, it really. If you think of, if we think about what you just described, so it's somebody putting Boys in the Hood together with Too Fast, Too Furious, and it's a preposterous combination. It's the worst thing of both of those things. That's true. Um, you have to commend though. I I thought you would come in hotter for this movie because there is just a ton. Just a ton of Mark Wahlberg, Tyrese, Andre 3000, and Garrett Hedlund just like sitting in the living room being like, hey, we're hanging out. Mm. We're hanging out and we're breaking stuff. 
You see that? We're going to break it. That reminds me of something that we did when we were kids. Haha. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of hang. I didn't say it was good hang, but there's a lot of hang. I but don't there's want like Wahlberg as my hang maestro because no. then what happens is you get. Do you ever get a sensation watching this movie of like Mark Wahlberg, uh, racist and homophobic shit talk seems to come a little easy to your character here? Unless it's in The Departed where it's played for a goof. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like hard to watch his performance and not think like maybe that's what Matt Damon meant where he was just like playfully homophobic with his family. Yeah. Um tough to say. I mean, it's definitely a it's it's definitely a character choice, but Yeah. Re- but when your character's Mark Wahlberg, yeah, do you, I don't really want to hear Mark Wahlberg say yo black ass to Tyrese makes me uncomfortable. The fact that he so and easily I, slips into the like Sofia Vergara you stop speaking Spanish. You, like there's something about the he's the sort of person who would just use Mexican as a pejorative, you know? Yes, if he doesn't in this movie, which he probably does. I think he does. No, cuz I feel like, you know, after maybe after 2010 you know, cinema kind of splits where, like, these sort of characters are, like, I don't know, with their, like, quick sexist talk and their, like, tough guy attitudes are, like, no longer considered that sympathetic in, in like, these kinds of action movies. Uh, and they'll re- be replaced by, like, a slicker, sort of more culturally sensitive, still white person. But... I don't know. This movie feels like a product of 2005. It does. And I mean, almost like in a, in a committed way, like I think when you rewatch this, I don't think four brothers is necessarily looking at you being like, isn't it so funny that Wahlberg brother keeps saying that Headland brother is, is gay. I, I think it's, 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 in the characters, like it's like these are this is the kind of roughness that's happening here. Um, it's not fun to partake in. Well, that's though. the thing. It's I don't have a problem with the characterization. I just think after a time watching right. this movie is like you just want me to root for this kind of stupid guy's flying by the seat of his pants style of thinking and doing things and like I don't know, 20, 15, 16 years later, that's maybe like not the approach to, you know, this kind of masculinity and storytelling that like, is that entertaining? Who are you going to turn to, Noah, though? Josh Charles? See, Josh Charles is a character uh, that I can relate to. Uh, (laughs) Handsome, uh, is a sellout, uh, a liar and a fraud. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, Willing to do anything to cover his mistakes. Kills his partner after uh, many years. After 200 podcast <laughs> episodes together. 200 stakeouts. Guns down yeah. his partner in cold blood. Yeah, that's a weird turn this movie makes too. But I guess you got to have a villain. Let me Okay, let me talk about some things I like about this movie. Because I do think it. There is a lot of there is a lot of fun to be had, I think. Um, when just like all hell is breaking loose and they're 
like play actually some of the best hang in the movie is probably that hockey game where it's very clear that like two of them can skate and two of them absolutely cannot the way the movie is edited together like that's that's some fun um i like the specific detroit 2005 references where uh, they describe the witness to the mom's murder as like a Ben Wallace looking guy. And for someone to be like, you mean the guy who looks like Ben Wallace? And then to have one of the brothers be like, yeah, crying at a Ben Wallace reference. Um, and Shuatel, he is a ton of fucking fun in this movie. I mean, he owes Denzel like royalties for what he's doing with this character. This character like literally gives the Pelican Bay speech from training day at the end, like to all the goons surrounding him. And like when he shows up and like gets out of the car and he's just doing all the Denzel things, he's counting, he's asking rhetorical questions. Um, but he's very overqualified to play this part and is, is quite good at it. I think it's weird to me that he's really only in two scenes in this movie though. And I almost feel like he's an underutilized bad guy. And it almost feels like he like uh, Shuatel has to go for the Denzel school of acting just because he doesn't have enough oh, sure. presence. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's really just in the, the eat the pasta off the floor scene. And there's like a passing moment where they're like in his lair and he like tells the kids to go get, eat some ice cream. But that's he essentially tells- the same scene as the previous one. And then there's the one where everybody turns at him because it's labor versus, you know, landowner or whatever. A lot of crazy ass shit in this movie. Like when they go to the lawyer's house and they break into his house and they start beating the hell out of him. They start slapping his freezing belly. And he's like, I saw your mom socially. And Mark Wahlberg's like, oh, okay, sorry, man. I didn't mean to slap you on the belly a hundred times. <laughs> or when, when they, when Tyrese has found out that he thinks Andre 3000 is scamming them or maybe had a part of the mom's death to collect the life insurance money. And he holds on to this information for 18 hours before deciding to reveal it in a scene when three of the four brothers are all like basically naked in the bathroom together. <laughs> like that's the time and place. Well, they're, they're emptying their pockets, so to speak. Crazy shit in this movie. My favorite sequence in this film was that well my my favorite juxtaposition was that they show uh Shibitel going into frozen lake michigan like in the background of a shot where mark Wahlberg is just like hulking around <laughs> but then they like have to zoom in on the compound fracture of like yeah. the guy that's falling out the window and he got his like bone hanging out of his leg yeah Ugh. yeah that was a lot tone stuff man it's about tone let me let me say this chance what's uh i believe this movie's a bad bad oh i okay i think it's a bad good i had a fun why i had a fun time i like watching all of these incredibly disparate actors try to pretend to be related and they're just so not or i bonded of course bonded by experience they've just never met each other before the production of this film it's very obvious yeah andre accidentally calls tyrese big boy a few times um garrett headland 
I've always been rooting for Garrett Headland, you know? Like I really I think he has this kind of like baritone pussycat kind of purring. Um oh and he's my. I, I think he's a good actor who's just like never quite gotten the shine I wanted him to get. And it's not it's not in this. You just movie. fucking love Triple Frontier. That's right. And you just like can't get over it. That really does describe my approach to be real for the last. And like, you love Inside Lewin Davis, of course. I mean, Inside Lewin Davis is legitimately great. Um, and you love Georgia Rule. Don't know what that is. What's Georgia Rule? Georgia Rule uh, was Cider a House two-hander. Rule? Actually, it was like more like almost like a three-hander uh, with Jane Fonda and Lindsay Lohan. Oh. Where Lindsay Lohan's like, like troubled, a bad and has to acting go live. teen, like has to go live in Georgia with her grandmother. And Gary Plus Headland's Huffman the love and Mulroney or her family, or her parents. Is Headland is Headland the heartthrob? He's not even in it. I don't know why I brought it up. What? No, he's the <laughs> he's the heartthrob. Okay. Um. No, I think it's fun, but it's you really it's really stupid. Okay, as long as you give it that disclaimer. Um, and it's on Showtime if you have that streaming channel. Ooh. I do, uh, so I'm allowed to go back and revisit episodes of uh, Ray Donovan at my leisure. Wow, that'll be a fun eight years of your life. Brothers Bloom? 2008, Brothers Bloom. The Brothers Bloom are the best con men in the world swindling millionaires with complex scenarios of lust and intrigue. Now they've decided to take on one last job, showing a beautiful and eccentric heiress the time of her life with a romantic adventure that takes them around the world. How'd you find me? It's actually pretty simple. We're brothers. And I've come to the conclusion that you don't want out. You think you do, but you don't. Where are we going? New Jersey. Let me grab my coat. This will be the last one. I'll never ask you to do another con again. The largest private residence on the eastern seaboard, home of our final mark. Penelope Stamp lived at home her whole life. So what kind of stuff do you do? I collect hobbies. Wow. So, who's in? She's an artist of nitroglycerin. It's kind of her thing. Next million, Melville, at your service. I didn't expect him to actually be Belgian. I'm not sure he is. We're taking a steamer at noon tomorrow off the docks. It's like an adventure story. What's the con? We go to St. Petersburg to be our guys in a phony setup who then double-cross us and kill us all. She drives off on the run from imaginary Russians. And we keep her money. How much? 2.5 million. You're a genius, Stephen. This is Ryan Johnson between his debut Brick and 2012. I Looper. fucking love Brick. You any opportunity, you're just like, I remember seeing that movie and just thinking, oh, this movie's so fucking cool, and I hate that, but it's so cool. <laughs> That's exactly my reaction to it. I've gotten over that third thing. It's just now, it's just like so cool. That's good. I mean. Ryan Johnson is one of our premier genre movie like lovers and tinkerers. 
And I never seen this. You said you saw it in college, right? I saw this in college. But this is absolutely the knives out treatment for like the sting as opposed to an Agatha Christie book. I would say too that the aesthetics of it feel very much like I I think you can call like Wes Anderson movies a genre. And it almost feels like it's in the key of like a Wes Anderson kind of like caper. Like the writing, like the handwriting on the screen, um, like the cartooniness. It's almost like Ryan Johnson saw Royal Tenenbaums and was just like, well, I have a lot of street cred from Brick, but I like don't know exactly who I'm going to be in Looper. So let me make something that like Summit Entertainment will finance and distribute. The only thing I think makes it disparate from Wes Anderson is that um, he's playing with the same kind of like symmetry and like French film influences and caricatures um, and genre vocabulary, except that all of his most interesting moves, I think, are when he tries to make the movie turn toward the real. And like, don't get me wrong, it's ridiculous, but all of his like smartest moments come from being like, well, wait, if this actually happened, like, what would be the little bit of resonance that can be mined from that? And the biggest one being, right. of course, the twist at the end of the movie. That's something that Wes wouldn't do. Wes would go further into the unreal. So that's sort of the Ryan Johnson you can kind of hold on to in here, I think. Maybe, but I even feel like the surprise ending is kind of like a fable, which still has smacks of Wes Anderson to me, like these masculine fables. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, agree to okay. disagree. All right. But that's not to say that this movie, like, isn't visually kind of breathtaking uh, in the fact that Johnson has a little bit more money, but is smart enough, too, to know how to make that money go as far as possible. You know, there's some really awesome shots on boats and on trains and in, like, fabulous locations that they've found, like both uh, on the western and eastern sides of Europe um, and South America as well, you know, and finding these little moments of, of like, scene character. Like, you see kind of, like, what's on the table in terms of, like, what they're drinking depending on what country they're in. Or you see, like, the signage. Like, that kind of distinguishes, like, what, is, what does a hotel sign look like? Oh, well, it's neon in, in South America. But when we're in Russia, like, it's sort of white paint that's, like, peeling at the edges. Like, right. I think he's really good at, like, the mise-en-scene, if you will. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm with you. The... Brothers Bloom, as we've already debated, may or may not be biological brothers, but they were foster kids who were passed around all the time, kicked from home to home because of the cons that they took to as young children. Uh, the older one, Stephen, is played by Marcus Ruffalo um, in in adult form, and the younger one is Bloom, played by Adrian Brody once they um, once they're all grown. And this last job they do is to try and get um, embezzle, to pose as uh, antique dealers and embezzle a few million from Rachel Weiss, who uh, is playing like a New Jersey heiress living in sort of like a Xanadu kind of place by herself, who obsessively takes up um, hobbies and perfects insane 
hobbies uh, like the uh, what juggling fire. Um, what are some of her other crazy chainsaws? Hobbies? Chainsaws. Yeah. She plays. She plays all these instruments. Uh, what she can't do is drive a car. Right. She keeps. There's a great visual gag where she crashes a Lamborghini. And then within a few minutes, like the next day's Lamborghini is delivered behind the con men who are still spying on her. They're just coming in every hour. And I'd say that's like a pretty Wes Andersonian flourish, like the uh, Ferraris, uh, the Lamborghini, the Lamborghini delivery service. Um, Yeah. And this one, too, you have to appreciate as well the costuming. There's some really great, because the whole sort of point of the movie, like pulling apart the narrative a little bit, is about these men who have never really grown up and they've, they're living these lies that kind of stand up for personalities. Uh, they're con men, but they're, they're making their way in the world. And of course, uh, Adrian Brody wants a little bit more authenticity, whereas like Mark Ruffalo's he just he feels this is this is the world. This is the thing that they're good at, and why stop doing something if it's working? Uh, and to see too, like how they fashion themselves, like the whole movie kind of feels like it's set behind the scenes of like a theater. And of yeah. course, the the climactic scene is in a theater, a very cool sort of broken down theater. But it almost feels like you're watching characters like change costumes like things are a little bit looser because like in the next shot that you're not gonna see they're gonna have to throw off this this shirt and put on something on top of it so i really love that feel about it it's like lived in but of course it's like quality design stuff true true um yeah adrian brody the younger of the brothers his big gripe is that he wants to lead an unwritten life essentially he doesn't want to just like play these parts in steven's expertly designed gambits where someone falls in love with him because of you know the couple of lines that he feeds um there is a very funny what he's essentially arguing is i don't want to be a movie character um and there is like a really funny uh joke where when steven ruffalo is just like all right fine bloom Go ahead. And he's like, go leave, leave your unwritten life. And the unwritten life is uh, uh, dr- drinking too much in Montenegro and falling asleep in a hovel, um, which is kind of the movie being like, nah, the, you, you have to be a movie character. Get out of your hovel. Uh, get back in here. Well, ultimately, yeah, because ultimately that line is transformed in the only thing. It's not about an unwritten life. It's a, a life written interestingly. Yeah, right. And that becomes the major takeaway that even like we're all con people in a manner of speaking, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just having having the exploits that really makes the the ride worthwhile, or at least these characters. Uh, that's what they believe. But yeah, and then Johnson ha- kind of makes his characters play with this idea of like, what is the right movie for these people? Like when Adrian Brody first starts to try and woo Rachel Weisz. He has this very practiced speech, which if you imagined it in a more like straight ahead um, kind of like rom-com, it should work, right? He's talking about um, uh, how they would visit like Marrakesh as boys and, and Paris and like the ionization that happened in these rainstorms that defined who they were growing up. And like, she just doesn't give a shit and it's not bad writing. That's the funny thing about it. She's just being like, this 
movie he's trying to spin won't work on this character. We have to find a new movie that in her case is like more madcap. And one of the great sort of subversive elements of um, Rachel Weiss's, uh what's her name again? Penelope. Uh, Rachel Weiss's Penelope is um, that there's no stakes to her. They keep trying to take right. her money. They keep trying to take her money. And she's like, I don't, you can have it. It doesn't matter. She just wants to be in the gang, which is right. Very enjoyable. Well, and it also forces, as we were talking about earlier with Blues Brothers, it forces the tension to be between the two brothers. And I think that's really kind of playful. This movie almost has like a banditsness to it, where it's these two guys who are kind of figuring out who they are in the context of like what this woman can give them. And for Steven, it's like an actual check from a bank and then from bloom it's love and intimacy and i think how they're kind of playing on each other back and forth like that makes it a more interesting film where you can have adult male characters in it where the thing you're picking apart and critiquing is so much more interesting than mark Wahlberg like saying this and that is gay Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff is more interesting than that. Um, yeah, Rachel Weiss is is very funny in this movie too, in sort of a cute way, where she, where she before she realizes they're con artists, she just thinks they're smugglers, which is a very funny like waypoint, where it's just like, oh yeah, 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 just like illegal antiquities, not like con artists. And she's just like, she's stealing stuff from the cart on the train and like coming back in the room being like, we're smuggling from the snack car, which I enjoy. Um, I think, do we want to talk about the end? Of our podcast? Mm-hmm. Ta-da. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> yes. Um, I think the ending, and I remember feeling this way when I saw this in... 2008 when it came out was that the ending is like a little slight like it's kind of doing this grand finale thing where it's like the ending that you thought was the ending is not the ending which you didn't think was the ending which is the ending and then it's like but then like you know he got shot like the, he he didn't pull off the illusion you know right. and, and that he didn't do the thing I mean, I guess the, you know, the Ryan Johnson writer in this is like, well, he did do the thing because everybody got what he wanted. You know, Stephen gets to die in a blaze of glory and then he makes sure that his brother, you know, has the love in his life to sustain him. And like, this is his last con. Everybody gets what they want. Right. Uh, but I don't know. That's not that complicated. Like for as complicated as the third act of this movie purports to be. It's pretty simple, and I think maybe that's what I kind of find frustrating about it. Like, I kind of wanted the a little more of the 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 totem to wobble at the end of Inception. Hmm. See, I think on paper, everything you just laid out is really good, but the experience of watching it, like, you're going on this, like, one last, has Ruffalo been kidnapped by uh, Maximilian Schell's diamond dog, this uh, Russian criminal who like raised them for a time. And he, I'm, I think as the audience, you're supposed to be like, well, obviously this is another con. 
but it's going it goes on a long 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 time i th- i do think the end of the movie is basically just saved by mark ruffalo who um oh he's brilliant forever cannot he just can't do enough performances like this and i just wish he would do would do more because he he basic for me when brody is just like despondent and you were like get up man like you did it this is the perfect con Ruffalo basically saves the movie with that shit-eating grin on his face, and he says, you said it, not me, and he kind of handsprings up, um, and then just the melancholy that takes over the movie, but the imbalance I was talking about is the really, 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 really long walk through a not-that-interesting fake-out to a really nice, heartfelt, pathos-filled reveal but then the end of the movie is just is also pretty easy where Brody's like, I'm free, sunset, car. I don't know. Exactly. I think that's that's what trips me up too, is like the long lead up to that fake out to having like an ending note that's so clean and not dissonant in some way. Okay. So I took five minutes to say what you were saying. Sorry. Um, I mean, that is the, that's what we do well, on this podcast. <laughs> Um, that being said, though, mm-hmm. I liked it a lot more this time than I did when I'd seen it initially. Because I guess, like, I mean, I went in with being like, well, Brick was the best movie I've ever fucking seen. So, so this good has it made be you mad. Better. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it set unrealistic expectations for my viewing experience. Um, but I think it's a good good. I think so, too. Um it's breezy. It's tasteful. Uh, it's very funny. There are a lot of there are a lot of like good little lines and bits where they can't decide whether to say Argentine or Argentinian, so they just say that poor Argentina man. Um, there's the poor lots man of good, from South America. There's lots of little kind of um, writerly stuff like that. We should shout out um, Rinko Kikuchi, uh, who plays Bang Bang, a character that is potentially problematic. Oh, yeah. Um, but I she, wondered if we were going to, well, if it were not for how Rinko is so, her physical comedy is just so funny where she like throws sunglasses into the river and then like finds more. Um, and the only thing she says in the movie is fuck me. Um, it's, it's like a little kind of like guy, Richie, cute and stupid. It doesn't totally fit in the movie, but I think she's great in it. I worried that her characterization, not her fault, the way it's written, was like a little manic pixie anime Japanese girl. Sure. For my for my taste. And I think some of that cuteness too, you it is just a byproduct of uh parroting Wes Anderson a little bit, who I think also fetishizes Japanese culture in some ways, along with every other major American filmmaker. Uh but yeah, this one oh, I too, thought you were gonna especially say like the fetishizes everything. He fetishizes rodents. He fetishizes chocolate. I mean, if we were talking about a rodent film, uh, we could talk about that, but we're not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a little, it's a little sticky. It's a little prickly. It it it, it raised my hackles a little bit. Okay. Did you yeah. say good good too? Not a perfect movie by any means. But I do think it's good no good. murder at sixteen hundred. No, <laughs> no, it's not. You know, um, this movie could use sort of a Dennis Miller in the background. 
being not like, many movies can say that they could have used a Dennis Miller in the background, but this one, I'd put it on that list. The preferred nomenclature is Argentine, babe. Um, <laughs> Was that your Dennis Miller? Yeah, babe. I would love if you did a supercut of all like the mediocre 90s men, <laughs> 80s and 90s men that you've done one-line impressions of. Yeah, Brothers Bloom is a good good. Um it seems it the the moment like he released a third movie it was destined to be minor Ryan Johnson and it still is, but um this is only his second film. A lot of talent, a lot of fun. No, I mean, like, when Looper came out, it was just, like, very clear. It was like, oh, yeah. Oh. People aren't going to pay much attention to Brothers Bloom anymore. If they ever I did. I mean, I don't think it's bad. Like, I don't... I, I gave it a good good. You know, I think people should go so back I. and... I, I don't know who I'm fighting with. This one is on everyone's favorite public library movie streaming service, Canopy. That's how I watched it. Let me ask you this, Chance. What's up? After 200 podcasts in six and a half years, are we brothers? Right. We never really made explicit that that was the idea here. Um, it was all set up. It was like the third act of Brothers Bloom to like get to this, this, yeah. this point. If you didn't realize it by now, we are the Blues Brothers. And if we are brothers, sub-question, yeah. which set of brothers from these films do you think we most are i think it's pretty obvious i think that, that i'm your mark ruffalo i am tyrese and you <laughs> <laughs> no and no you are mark Wahlberg. obviously spewing off profanity and being really upset about our mom what is obviously it? you are steven and i am bloom I have I, I hate to break it to you now this far into our journey together, but I have no plan. I you know? I don't have I don't have that big piece of paper where it's like and then in the two hundred and first podcast, that's when Spotify is like, here's a million dollars. Oh, all right. Well, as Mark Wahlberg says in the two thousand five film Four Brothers, it's not a plan if it takes longer to say than it does to come up with. Fair enough. It's been my pleasure, buddy. Mine too, man. It's been a good run. Yep. We'll see you in September (laughs) for episode 201. Leave you in suspense, I guess, as to what that category will be. We probably should. I I think it should be all the back-to-school musicals. All the back-to-school musicals. What are those? Grease. Grease. Grease 2 and... Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Netflix puts out a lot of films. I'm sure there's uh, one out there. The Prom. That seems like an end of school musical. You're right. Let's workshop it offline. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Uh, From the bottom of our hearts. Appreciate it. Noah, catch you next time. I'm so mad. I'm so mad.